Huckabee. Congressman Mark Green with the latest on the coronavirus battle. Martha McCallum on how the Marines saved the world. And the Beach Boys join us. And now, here's Mike Huckabee. And thank you very much, Keith Bilbrey. Welcome to a very special edition of The Huckabee Show here on TBN. It's special because we are now in our second week of the coronavirus version of our show without our studio audience. Uh, most of our guests coming to us primarily from their homes by way of Skype. And your host actually in government-imposed exile some 461 miles from our theater and coming by way of a fiber-fed transmission line from a virus-free studio. Well, the coronavirus and the resulting shutdown of our nation is proving to be a genuine hardship for all Americans, especially those in the service sector, whose jobs have virtually disappeared overnight, and for many, they may not return. The travel and tourism industry is decimated. The stock market imploded, and of all things, Toilet paper became a more precious commodity, or should I say commodity, than dollar bills. Now, if you're from the rural South and you grew up several decades ago, you weren't worried about the toilet paper shortage. You just knew to eat more corn on the cob and save the cobs. When I mentioned that on Twitter, I was excoriated for my lack of sophistication. But I would ask my snobby critics, What's your solution when there's no charm to squeeze? I honestly don't think I even want to know. Now, are there any positive things to come from this pandemic, as well as the economic and social disaster that it's caused? Actually, you bet. For one, maybe we finally learned that globalism isn't all it's cracked up to be. And we ought to be thinking more about making America strong, self-sufficient, and independent of countries like China, whose communist government kept hidden the blunt force of the virus until they finally slammed their fist on the population of Wuhan, China, and then turned it into a gulag. But by then it was too late, and the virus had already started to spread throughout the world. President Trump immediately put a halt to travel from China, and of course, he was promptly labeled a racist by Nancy Pelosi, other Democrats, and their co-conspirators in the media. Interestingly, Publications like the Washington Compost and the New York Slimes themselves demanded a travel ban in the early days on what even they then called the Wuhan virus. And just for their reminder, Wuhan is in China. Now, the use of that term is, of course, racist, which means that we dealt with the Spanish flu, German measles, MERS, which stood for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, for all those years. And we never knew that we were all racist for calling it a disease from its point of origin. We've learned to appreciate some real heroes that we've taken for granted, and that's been an advantage, like truck drivers. As bad as this been, it's the truckers who've kept this country moving and stocked with food and supplies. So when you see a trucker on the highway, say a prayer of thanks for him or her. They've been your lifeline. We ought to be more grateful as well for healthcare workers and not just the doctors who get most of the attention, but for the nurses, the front office staff, nursing home workers, technicians, 
and even the people who cleaned the buildings where all those folks work. Truth is, they've been exposed to more germs in a week than most of us will be in a lifetime. And we need to be grateful for our policemen, firefighters, and first responders. They don't get to stay home and just wait this out. They're on call 24-7 to clean up the messes that humans make. And be grateful for those who deliver the mail and as well as packages. Doesn't matter whether it's the post office, UPS, FedEx, whoever. I mean, I'm getting stuff shipped to my house to keep from venturing out. And those folks in the warehouses, shipping platforms, and the drivers getting it to my neighborhood, well, they're real heroes to help the rest of us practice social distancing. We ought to be grateful for grocery clerks and stockers, pharmacy workers who also deserve our deep thanks. Finally, we're shaken to our roots through all of this because we realize that with March Madness, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and every single sporting event canceled, athletes can't save us. And with the theaters closed and movie sets shut down, Hollywood and actors, they can't save us. With a financial meltdown, money can't save us. And with the congressional bungling of a rescue bill and Pelosi trying to add money for non-virus nonsense like funding abortions and NPR and the Green New Deal, politicians sure can't save us. In fact, they may end up killing us. But when human institutions fail, God never does. His comfort, his healing, his promises bring us peace when nothing or no one else does or even can. And that is something that we have learned from all of this. Well, the coronavirus has infected tens of thousands of Americans, leaving more than three million people unemployed, and businesses are on the verge of collapse. Congress just this week passed a $2 trillion coronavirus relief bill, which amounts to the largest stimulus in all of American history. But is it enough? Or is it too much? And is there too much pork loaded in it? Joining me now from Washington is a physician and a member of Congress and a good friend of the show, Congressman Mark Green. Congressman, let's get right to it. You uh, were able to be part of a group that passed the uh, stimulus bill. It had a little hiccup at the end with a Republican congressman uh, almost gumming up the works and keeping it held up from anything. What was his point in all of that? Well, I think he was making the point that a, a bill that size should have a voice vote or have a, a roll call vote. The, the problem with that is, is we would have waited another several days to get everybody in. You know, the, the flights are just terrible right now. We had many congressmen who struggled to get here anyway, and uh, it, it would have meant a, a significant wait for people to get to get the relief that this bill provides. And the small bu business loans that this sets up are, are absolutely critical for, for our economy right now. We've gotten, as you mentioned, millions of Americans out of work. In Tennessee, in the first three days of this week, we had 90,000 people apply for unemployment. And, and we have got to get out there and help those, those people and the businesses that employ them. So I'm glad it, I got, I'm glad it got passed. The president has signed it. It's, uh, it's now a done deal. Um, some people are critical. And, and look, I get it. Uh, if you don't have all the, the whole works, if you don't have both houses of Congress, the House, the Senate, and the White House, you're going to have to give up some things. Republicans clearly uh, had to give up some things in order to get enough Democrats from the House on board for it to pass. Some of it just doesn't make any sense. 
700 or uh, $75 million to the National Endowment of the Arts. You know, I want to ask Speaker Pelosi, are, are we trying to de- develop some kind of, you know, decorative origami about the coronavirus? I mean, I don't, I don't understand why that's there, but um, it, it's what we had to do to get the bill passed to get the relief to the workers so, and to the businesses. So we, we did it. The president has talked about maybe seeing some things open up by Easter. That's not that far away. Uh, it, it seems that the coronavirus cases are continuing to be on the uptick in a lot of places. How realistic do you think it is, and I'm asking you both as a congressman as well as a physician, for us to be there by sure. Easter Sunday where things are loosening up? You know, I'm an emergency medicine physician, and I get the privilege uh, of hearing from those guys on the front lines. Um, there are some parts of the country where the virus is really having a big toll in New Orleans, New York, places like that. Um, And I think what we really need to do, and the president mentioned this approach, and that's apply the curves locally and at the state level and let governors and mayors make those decisions about opening up the economy. And I think that's the best way to do this. The curve in Nashville is different than the curve in New York. And that's, uh, you know, that's, basically a result of us implementing the social distancing and all of that stuff earlier in Nashville in our curve than they did in New York. So I think those decisions should really be made on the local level. I think I think the president would ultimately agree with that. When we talk about uh, the damage to the economy, and nobody doubts that it's been dramatic, not just the stock market, yeah. but the uh, em- employment situation, so very dif- difficult. How long is it going to take for this country to get back up on its feet, be strong again? I think we all believe it's going to be, but how long are we going to wait for that? I don't think it's going to be as long as some people are, are, are saying, mostly because we're talking about Americans here, and we have a president who gets it. You know, the Trump economy prior to this was incredible. Uh, you know, the engine was at full speed, and I think very quickly those businesses that open up Plus, now you're going to have an infusion of cash in the system, both liquidity and in people's pockets, and you're going to see with the checks coming out, and you're going to see the economy come back roaring. I think we'll see, you know, some people have called it a, a hockey puck reception, uh, recession where there's sort of a, a dip, and then, and I think that's what it'll be. The, the economy is going to roar back within a couple of months. Congressman, a uh, lot of talk about the uh, malaria medication that, uh, at least anecdotally, Uh, appears to be working and working well for people who have coronavirus. Uh, It's a safe medicine, been out 70 years. There's some medical professionals that seem to be reluctant for physicians to prescribe that. You're a doctor. Would you have any reluctance if you had a coronavirus patient to prescribe some of the malaria drugs and antibiotics that would perhaps give them an opportunity to shake this off quicker? Personally, as a clinician, I I would use it. Um, I do know that there are anecdotal uh, studies out there that are small case size studies, you know, the six, uh, N equals six, so to speak, in, uh, in France that showed significant improvement with uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromax. And we do need bigger studies, though, to extrapolate that to the, to the general population. If you got a sick patient, you know, you do everything you can. You throw the kitchen sink at it, so to speak. Um, so as a physician, I'm a firm believer that, that as an MD, I have the authority to write off-label. 
and I would do that in a heartbeat if I thought it was necessary for a mm. patient. You know, remdesivir, the, the antiviral from Gilead is showing a lot of promise too, and it's in a phase three trial, so it should be able to get out there uh, pretty quickly as well, and, and hopefully we'll get it out soon. Well, thank you again. And you can keep up with the congressman on Twitter at Rep Mark Green. Also, sign up for his newsletter at markgreen.house.gov. Our own Keith Bilbrey is going to help you beat your homebound boredom tonight because he's going to tell you about the great things that we've got in store. Keith, go ahead and take it away. Well, tonight, Martha McCallum celebrates the Marines and comedian Zoltan Kazaz performs. Later, China expert Gordon Chang checks in and the Beach Boys join us here on Huckabee. Dan Crenshaw tells how to be strong in tough times. And renowned sand artist Joe Castile performs. Hey, welcome back. Now, you probably watch my next guest every weeknight on Fox News Channel and for special news presentations on Fox. But she's also the author of the new bestseller, Unknown Valor, a story of family, courage, and sacrifice. From Pearl Harbor to Iwo Jima, it's about a part of our history that is more needed to understand now more than ever. What a pleasure to welcome Martha McCallum. Martha, thanks for being here. And I'm going to get right to this important question. This book, very personal for you, wasn't it? It, it absolutely is. Uh, the sort of nexus of the story is letters that I was given and read through when I was growing up from Harry Gray, who was my mother's first cousin. And he was 18 years old when he was killed on Iwo Jima. And his story always moved me as a teenager. And I kept kind of returning back to them over and over, over the years and sharing the letters with my friends when we would talk about World War II. And eventually I decided to write his story. And when I did that, it sort of I realized that I had to go back to the beginning. You know, I had to start with Pearl Harbor to explain the Pacific theater and his role in it. It's very personal, but it also is a very epic story about the Pacific theater that, that brings in the whole history of the stepping stone strategy through the Pacific, through the Central Pacific, and leading to, to Iwo Jima. You actually visited some of these places, Pearl Harbor. Uh, you went to places like Iwo Jima. Was it emotional to go to these places where so much of our nation's important history took place? It was about halfway through the process that I took the trip to Iwo Jima. There's one trip that you can take if you, you know, sort of qualify, if you have family member or friend or you're working on a project, they open the island. It's under Japanese control once again. And they open up the island one day a year in March on the anniversary of the battle for what's called the reunion of honor. So I made that trip from the U.S. to Tokyo, and being there, being on Mount Suribachi, we hiked up to the top of it, looked down at the beaches where everyone landed, and then walking down to those beaches where Harry Gray and the other young men that I write about in the book all landed and got their first look at it. It just really brought so much of it home for me. I don't think I could have written the book if I hadn't actually gone there and, and walked those beaches and climbed Suribachi myself to get the real sense of what it was like. You did a magnificent job of creating a vivid picture of this. And you make a comment that you say you believe the U.S. Marines basically saved the world. Now, the Marines love hearing that, but you might explain what is it about the Marines 
that what they did saved the world? Well, you know, when World War II began, the U.S. Marines was a very tiny band of a few Marines who were uh, who had sort of formed at the end of World War One. Um, but the Pacific theater was largely driven by Marine efforts in those islands. And, you know, Secretary of the Navy, Forrestal, was on Iwo Jima when they lifted the flag. And he said that flag means that there will be uh, an ongoing U.S. Marine Corps for many, many, many years to come. And it, it really put them in the center of one of the pivotal battles of American history. And I think, you know, that 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 role that they played in those islands, which was so they were up against just unbelievable odds in the early stages of this. Japanese had much more dominant naval power at that point because so many of our ships had been lost at Pearl Harbor. And remember that that the battle that was fought in the Pacific was directly against those who attacked us at Pearl Harbor, which was the biggest inspiring factor for so many of these young men who signed up. It wasn't Europe that drew them in initially. Um, it, what they really, what really fired up so many of these young men who became Marines was the attack on Pearl Harbor and the vengeance that they wanted to, uh, to, to carry out in, in response to it. And that's what happened um, in, you know, fighting back the forces of Japan all through those stepping stone islands in the Pacific. Martha, in the time that we've got left, I, I want to ask you to make an application between what these incredible people did 70 years ago uh, with what America's going through now with the coronavirus and, and throwing this nation into a, a world it's never been in before. Can you see a parallel and, and what strength might we draw from those heroes that you so vividly wrote about? Well, you know, it's interesting to me. There was a, a meme that was going around on social media and the image that was chosen to represent the people on the front lines right now, our emergency responders, nurses, doctors, was that was of the flag raising on Iwo Jima. It was a cartoon that was drawn with all of these people in their medical gear and also uh, first responders in from law enforcement lifting that flag as, as it was lifted on Suribachi. So for me, you know, that was just a very strong parallel because I it made me realize that that iconic image of Suribachi has been such a long-lasting image that Americans today equate it with pulling together, being courageous, being up against odds that are very, very difficult. Uh, and I do think that we're seeing that on these front lines, which are happening in, in hospitals in America and also with, with first responders. Well, Martha, I hope every person who lived through that period of history will get your book because they'll want to uh, get a side of it they may have never heard. And the rest of America needs to get the book because America should never forget the great sacrifice of these heroes that saved the world. What a joy to have you, Martha McCallum, with us tonight. Keith Bilbrey, why don't you tell our viewers how they can get Martha's great best-selling book. Unknown Valor is available on Amazon and at all major bookstores now. You can follow Martha on Twitter, at Martha McCallum, and watch for her weeknights on Fox News. Coming up, stand-up comedian Zoltan Kazaz celebrates cats. Then China expert Gordon Chang. Later, Franklin Graham reports on the coronavirus toll in Italy. And the Beach Boys take to the stage. Huckabee is on a roll tonight. MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter.
And welcome back to the show. Well, comedian Zoltan Kazaz was scheduled to be in our studio, but like the rest of us, he couldn't travel. However, thanks to our friends at drybarcomedy.com, where you can catch world-class clean comedy shows from the comfort of your own home, we're able to bring you Zoltan for his funny perspective on why he thinks cats are better than dogs. And I'm gonna tell you, as a boy who's a dog lover like me, this guy's got his work cut out for him. I got a cat named Jessica. Uh, thank you. I'm a cat person. Are there any other cat people out there? Yeah? Got some cat people here? Nice. I'm guessing the rest of you are dog people. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm not anti-dog. Yeah. Every time I tell someone I'm a cat person, I'm like, what does that mean? You don't like dogs? No, that's not what that means. It just means I like other people's dogs. I like dogs, I just like them over there. And I'll play with them, but then go back over there. I don't like that kind of energy in my house. You know what I mean? That annoying dog, best friend in your face all the time energy. Just like, yeah! I love you! <laughs> You're home, where have you been? <laughs> it creeps me out, I don't care for that. I don't like that at all. <laughs> Just in your face, like, you want to go out? There's a tree. I know this tree. You want to hang out at this tree? What if I just keep breathing into your face? <laughs> Ugh. All the time? No, thank you. That's why I like cats. Cats are more like, hey, what are you up to? Uh, never mind. I just remembered I don't care. Uh, I'll be in the kitchen. I'll see you later. I don't need a best friend at the house. I just need like an apathetic roommate <laughs> that sometimes wants to hang out. <laughs> like a dog, you can pet a dog's belly all day. They'll never get tired of it, just all day. Just like, yeah, man, never stop. You're the best. <laughs> Hopefully not that creepy, but you get the idea. A cat, you can pet for what? Two, maybe three seconds? And so it's like, all right, get away from me. All my own thing's going on. I got a pile of clean laundry to lay on. Get away from me. That's what my cat does. It waits for the pile of clean laundry we haven't folded yet and just rubs on it while making eye contact. Just like, mm-hmm. Everyone's gonna know. <laughs> so bothersome. My wife, uh, she has a new hobby. She's really into special needs animals. I don't know if that's made its way out here, Provo. <laughs> If you don't know what special needs animals are, they're animals. Uh, they have special needs. <laughs> that is all. Uh, there, there's this one, Oscar the Blind Cat. It was a cat that was born without any eyes. And they have a like page on Facebook. And my wife goes on there every day and cries. And that's what she does for fun. That's what she does for a good time. And it's weird, because I come home and she's just on the computer. Like, ah! And you know, me being a guy, I always think it's something I did. And then she goes, no. And then she turns the computer and it's Oscar the blind cat. And he's like, look at Oscar. And he's adorable. He has no eyes. Just... And I'm like, oh. And then she goes, I want a special needs animal. I want one. I'm like, you don't ask for one. You get bestowed one. Because I don't know, what, what do you, you can't just go to the pound and be like, hey, hey, what do you have in the back? Like, that's not how that works. I need like a three-legged dog or a cat with something. What do you have? You can't do that. That's why, we, you know, we got Jessica at the pound. That's where we got Jessica. And we didn't name her Jessica. They named her at the pound. And people always ask, like, why don't you change your name? Because that's wrong. You don't change someone's name. That's rude. 
Like, if you adopt a kid from another country, they can't just be like, yep, can't pronounce that. Your name's Jeff now. <laughs> That's rude. You learned that person's name. So I got a cat named Jessica. <laughs> Very much your fan. Uh, Jessica's overweight. She weighs uh, more than she should for a cat, uh, which sucks, because when people come over, no one blames the cat in that scenario. <laughs> You know what I mean? No one comes over and goes, what happened here, sweetheart? A little heavy on the carbs? No, they look at you and they go, what'd you do to her? And that's not fair, because I try. We have the laser pointer. I got the stick with the feather. I'm always running around my house. Come on, sweetheart, let's get the cardio going. She's not that into it. We, my wife and I, we bought diet formula kibble. They make diet formula kibble and they have rules. Just one cup per day, because you're on a diet, Jessica. <laughs> We tried, but then at two in the morning, Jessica would come into our bedroom at night, climb onto our bed, and then stand on my head. 22 and a half pounds of her, you guys, on my skull. And she would come down into my ear and just go, meh, meh. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, this diet is over. I had no idea that's how you felt about it. I apologize. I'm getting up right now and cooking you some bacon. Let's get after it. I don't have any children, but if I'm, in I'm out in public and I see a parent of an overweight child, I make eye contact and I go, I get it. Does that little fella stand on your head at night and scream in your ear? I get it, give him what he wants. We need our sleep. My wife and I, we sleep on a memory foam mattress. That's what we sleep on. Anyone else here rocking the memory foam mattress? It's the best mattress in the world. It's the most comfortable, isn't it? It's the best. That mattress is made for sleeping and sleeping only. Don't do anything else on that mattress. It was not created for that. That is not why scientists came together. It was made for resting comfortably, and that is it. I know, because we've tried, and it sucks every time. It's like trying to wrestle in quicksand. It is the worst. You just start sinking in slowly. Stay calm, stay calm. Just try to get your leg out. Just breathe, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes on the horizon. Try to get your leg out. Get your leg out. I'm gonna get some help. Jessica, we need some help. She can't help. She just stands on our backs and pushes us in further. Well, if you'd like to see more of Zoltan's comedy special Cat Jokes or hundreds of other funny and clean comics, just head to drybarcomedy.com. Now, Keith, Trey, I don't know about you. I'm a dog guy. I don't know. I, I, dog guy. I just well, have a hard time dog. keeping up with Zoltan. Yeah. The strange thing about me and cats and dogs, I, I like cats. I, I used to have some, but I'm very allergic to them. <laughs> but the thing about dogs and cats, to me, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but all dogs are males and all cats are females. I mean, it's just the way I look at them. <laughs> that I know, was very racist. That was really I, I kinda, racist. That was. You see what I'm saying? That well, it was sexist. Oh, it yeah. was. It sexist. is very. <laughs> Trey, you might offer you might offer your sofa to Keith because I have a feeling uh, that Emmy Joe is going to be oh, sending no. him somewhere, but it ain't home. He does I not agree. when he hears like that. Why don't you tell us how folks can keep up with our very funny friend Zoltan? Well, to follow Zoltan Kazaz and his funny takes on everyday life, just visit ZoltanComedy.com and follow him on social media at Zoltan Comedy. Next, China and U.S. relations expert Gordon Chang and a coronavirus report on Italy with Franklin Graham. 
Later, Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award winners, the Beach Boys. Join us right here on Huckabee. four months into the Chinese coronavirus pandemic that's killed thousands and shuttered businesses worldwide. China's Communist Party is trying to blame the U.S. for the outbreak. But why? My next guest is a respected China expert, senior fellow at the Gates Own Institute and author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon Chang, welcome to the show. I want to get right to it because uh, your expertise is probably as valuable as it's ever been on China. This started there but they've even tried to blame the U.S. military. What in the world is going on with the Chinese regarding the coronavirus? For six weeks in December and January, they didn't tell the world. The Chinese people are white-hot angry uh, for a number of things. Uh, you know, we're starting to see the outbreak of low-level violence in China right now. So I think what the Communist Party is trying to do is find an enemy. We've known that since the end of the first week in February up until now, the party has tried to tar the United States in connection with the epidemic. And so uh, blaming the U.S. for spreading it to Wuhan, the U.S. Army, intimating germ warfare is just part of this campaign to deflect blame and to try to tar the U.S. Uh, Gordon, there are reports that 95 percent of this might could have been uh arrested early had the Chinese government acted more transparently and more decisively. Um, what's your view on that? And why have they even criticized and in fact incarcerated some of their own doctors who were in the initial days were trying to get the word out and tell the people the truth about this virus? Yeah, the University of Southampton in Britain did that study which showed that if China had talked about this and tried to act earlier, uh, three weeks earlier, there would have been 95% fewer cases. And uh, one of the things that has really caused them heartburn uh, with the Chinese people really has been the prosecution of the Wuhan 8. Eight doctors in Wuhan, um, and particularly one of them who died on February 7th, that has made Chinese people think about fundamental political reform, Governor. So, for instance, um, they've adopted do You Hear the People Sing, which is that politically impactful song from Les Miserables as their own anthem. And that's what people in Hong Kong did as well um, as they protested China. So China's leaders know what it, what's at stake here. The president got a lot of pushback, people saying that he was uh, racist and xenophobic, first because he shut down travel from China, and then because he labeled it uh, the Chinese coronavirus. Speak to that and and should the president have chosen his words more carefully and maybe we shouldn't be talking about the Spanish flu of 1918 or German measles or MERS, which was Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, what's your view? Yeah. Well, first, on the first issue about the president acting to shut down travel with China, he did that on January 31st. And he took a lot of heat, not only from the Chinese Communist Party, but also from domestic critics. But he acted early. That was the most important decision that he made. And it was absolutely the right call. And we would be even more crippled now um, were it not for that decision to um, impose the travel restrictions on the quarantines. You know, as a Chinese American, um, I, I don't find what President Trump said racist at all. 
Um, he's gotten that criticism from many people in the U.S. We got to remember the context in which the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state have used those labels. And that is to defend the United States from charges from China that we were the origin of the virus. So, for instance, that March 12th tweet from a foreign ministry spokesman said, look, patient zero was in the U.S. and that the U.S. Army brought the virus. Those are inflammatory charges. The U.S. needs to defend itself, and the president did. And as a Chinese-American, I am so happy that he did so. What do you think of the long-term effect will this be, Gordon, for uh, globalization and maybe a wake-up call that we also need to be sure that the, uh, the idea of America first is not xenophobic? It may be a matter of survival. Yes, and, and I think a number of other countries are going to adopt policies similar to ours. And because globalization is, as you mentioned, you know, brought this disease to our shores and is a process of globalization over the course of decades, we've outsourced our manufacturing capability in critical areas. And, and this is not just China threatening to do this. Um, as Peter Navarro, the president's trade advisor, said, um, China actually nationalized an American factory in China, making those N95 masks for the United States. Also, um, as Maria Bartiromo has said, uh, China actually turned a ship around, um, which was carrying masks and protective gear for New York hospitals. So this is something that is China's been doing, and that has hurt us. It's undermined our ability to respond to this virus. So we've got to understand um, not only China's hostility, but the, the extent to which it will go to um, keep for itself items that we need and which is already sold to us. You know, it sounds utterly outrageous that they would turn a ship around that had medical supplies uh, that had already been ordered and purchased by Americans. What can and what should we do uh, to China as a nation for uh, these, quite frankly, outrageous behaviors? Well, for the first thing, um, Peter Navarro has been talking about uh, an executive order that he's been drafting for the president's signature on making sure that pharmaceuticals are actually manufactured within our borders. So that's the first thing. But also, I think we need to start imposing costs on China for really uh, unacceptable behavior. And this is going to take a number of different forms for us. But um, clearly, once this virus subsides, we're going to have a very different relationship with China. And indeed, um, going back to your earlier point, um, we're going to see a delinking of societies around the world. And that's, I think, absolutely necessary as countries move to self-sufficiency. Not every country has to be 100% self-sufficient, but we've got to do more to make sure that those things that Americans absolutely need are made in America. Gordon Chang, thank you for being with us. We uh, appreciate your insight and your scholarship on this issue, uh, probably second to none. Right now, Keith Bilbrey is going to tell you how to get Gordon's book and a whole lot more, which I hope you will do. You can find Gordon Chang's books, including The Coming Collapse of China, wherever books are sold. And keep up with Gordon on Twitter, at Gordon G. Chang. Well, before we move on with the show, we wanted to give a quick salute to the talented studio session singers right here in Nashville, Tennessee. To encourage all of us during this tough time, they put together an incredible song at a safe social distance, of course, and put it up on the internet. So take a listen to this. It is
Well, thanks to every last one of you for raising your voices. And thanks to 1026 Music Group and David Wise for arranging and putting it all together. Coming up, Samaritan's Perch works to save lives from the coronavirus. Then America's band, the Beach Boys, are here on Huckabee. Welcome back to our very special edition of Huckabee. We're so glad that you're joining us. Everybody's dealing with all kinds of things, but I'll tell you somebody who's dealing with a whole lot of things, from the tornadoes that were happening in Tennessee to the coronavirus outbreak in Italy. It's Samaritan's Purse, who's always among the very first on the scene, providing both physical as well as spiritual comfort to victims wherever and whenever disaster strikes. Here to tell us about their efforts in Italy is Samaritan's Purse president and CEO, Franklin Graham. Franklin, uh, you guys have been so busy already with everything from hurricanes to tornadoes and now the coronavirus. Uh, is this the most unusual and unique disaster that Samaritan's Purse has been confronted with? Well, I think it's uh, unique in the sense that this is a worldwide pandemic. When we were dealing with Ebola, it was uh, localized in several countries. Uh, in Africa. And of course, we've seen it not only in Italy, but all throughout Europe, across the United States. Uh, we deployed to Italy a, a 68-bed hospital that specializes in uh, uh, respiratory issues. Uh, we've got 67 personnel on the, on the ground. We've uh, used our cargo uh, plane. Uh, we have a DC-8. We've taken uh, two trips in there, and we'll have to go again here soon to, to resupply this hospital. But this is an area called the Cremora. It's in the Lombardic uh, district. It's up near Milan in the, in the northern part of the country. Uh, one of the hardest hit areas in Europe. And the, the Italians uh, have welcomed us. They're so grateful that we're there. But we're also looking at this country. Uh, we're looking at New York right now, uh, deploying one of our, uh, to be, a, again, a facility, like a field hospital, just but for respiratory. And we're, we're looking at that, talking to New York right now. We should know where we'll be going uh, probably by tomorrow morning. Uh, the, the world is upside down, governors, you know. People are afraid. People are scared. Uh, they don't know where to go, what to do. And I can tell you right now, as Christians, I believe this is a great opportunity uh, for us to stand up, to be counted, and to let people know the hope that we have. And that's our faith in Jesus Christ. When I think about what Samaritan's Purse does, I've seen firsthand one of the field hospitals that you used for Ebola. Uh, it's state-of-the-art. I, I hope people think, uh, when they think of Samaritan's Purse, this is not just a group of volunteers from churches who go and set up card tables and put on uh, some bathrobes and say, okay, we're going to treat people. This is the highest level of quality of uh, professional-level care that the world can see. Uh, you're taking it into areas where there is no other option. People would have nothing if you weren't there. It has to give you a sense of satisfaction knowing uh, that you're taking not only great medical care, but the love of Christ to these places where they may not have either one. And, and of course, we always take with us, um, Governor, we take chaplains. And we've got, uh, these are chaplains that have been trained in crisis uh, uh, issues. Uh, we've got them with us uh, there in Italy. We're also running, uh, Governor, uh, a prayer line, 
and we have uh, hundreds of people standing by that can answer the phones for people that may have the virus, people that are afraid, people don't know what to do. Uh, they can call this number, and I can't, I'd like to just give it, if I can, Governor, it's one eight eight. It's one triple eight three eight eight two six eight three. So that's eight 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 three eight eight two six eight three. And we've got people twenty four seven who will pray with you. Uh, and this is an opportunity, I think, to just share uh, with people the hope. And people are looking for hope, and uh, the hope that we have in God and His Son Jesus Christ. Franklin, you mentioned how people are unsettled by this. They're scared. They don't know what to do. Um, there has to be something deeper that Samaritan's Purse is able to provide. Certainly, you can provide the medical care. But talk to us about some of the ways that you're seeing firsthand how people are responding to the spiritual ministry that you're providing, uh, both in the U.S. as well as in Italy and other parts of the world. Well, you know, Governor, it's uh, we always go in the name of Jesus, and that's the, that's the difference. And I think for the people that we're helping, uh, they see that and they 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 respond to it. And our, our staff, our our volunteers, uh, they're going in the, they're going out of love and out of care for the people, and that that makes a huge impression on them. And when they see, especially like in Italy, when they see you have left your home, you left your country, and you've come to this hot zone that uh, no one wants to come to, and you're coming to help us, it just opens up a, a great door uh, for uh, our gospel message. But it, the comfort that it gives to people, uh, just knowing that there are people out there somewhere that cares about them, that knows who they are, and that is there to help them. And I think as Christians, today, followers of Christ, we need to do all that we can to care for not only a person's soul, but to care for the body, because the Lord Jesus did that himself. Well, we thank you and thank Samaritan's Purse for going forth across the world and ministering in Christ's name with real help. And if our audience would like to learn more about the amazing work that Samaritan's Purse is doing to bring hope to those who are being afflicted by the coronavirus in the epicenter of Italy, go to SamaritansPurse.org. You can also call the number on your screen, and I hope you will do something and that's share much-needed financial support. I give to Samaritan's Purse myself, and I hope you will too. Well, Keith, we're topping off this great show tonight with something pretty special. I'm gonna let you spill the beans about what's coming up next. Well, we're gonna celebrate Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, the Beach Boys, when they perform their biggest hit right here on Huckabee. Well, the Beach Boys are going to perform their big hit, Kokomo, next, and then I'm going to be back with a final word I'd like to share with you, so please stick around. Right now, here's rock and roll legends and Hall of Fame members, the Beach Boys. 59 years ago in Southern California, we started out. This one's from 1988, went to number one.
please sing with us too, okay? Aruba, Jamaica, ooh, I wanna take you. Bermuda, Bahama, come on, pretty mama. Ilargo, Montego, baby, why do we go? Off the Florida Keys, there's a place called Cocoa. That's where you wanna go, get away from it all. Bodies in the sand, tropical drink melting in your hand. We'll be falling in love to the rhythm of the steel drum band. Down the Come on, pretty mama, you Largo, Montego. 
Before we leave you, we want to offer you some encouragement. All the talk about the virus and the upheaval it's brought to our jobs, our schools, our sports, our churches, and our daily routines is unsettling. And we really don't know what's yet to happen or if we'll ever be the same financially or emotionally. But when things in this world become more uncertain, I'm comforted by the certainty of God's love and purpose. The virus may indeed separate me from my events or my friends or my travels, but it won't separate me from God or His love. And He's got a bigger purpose for you, me, and the world than for us to live in fear. I'm going to keep my sense of humor, keep my faith, and keep believing that greater is He that is in me than He that is in the world. Hey, we're going to be back next week, and I hope you will too. In the meantime, keep smiling, keep believing, and keep looking up. God is with us. From our entire team at The Huckabee Show, good night, everyone. <laughs>